Hi, y'all. You're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. On July 11th of this year, protests broke out across Cuba. The people chanting Libertad, Libertad, or Liberty, Liberty. Pretty quickly, left-leaning media in the United States and elsewhere attempted to spin the popular eruption as actually a protest against anything but what it was actually about, chiefly the Communist Party's brutal rule there on the island for the past 60 years. Now that some time has passed, we are joined back by the woodpile by author and historian Victor Triai to reflect on the events, the fallout, and how the world could have better helped the Cuban people than it did. First question, in your mind, what triggered the July 11th protests? Well, I think it was a lot of things. I think that you, you, you know, you constantly hear, oh, you, or, you know, in some press outlets, uh, oh, people were demanding food and, and vaccines, but really it was about freedom. Uh, this is now a generation that feels that repression uh, and they realize that with freedom, everything else will come with, with, with political freedom, individual freedom, economic freedom. Uh, they see Cuba as having problems that, that it doesn't have to have. And, and it's all um, attributable to the fact that it has a totalitarian government and not a government of the people or an economy of the people. Everything you know, belongs to the government. And, of course, when a government makes that kind of assumption, then everything is its fault. And uh, but it was it was more than anything a cry for freedom, and I know a lot of the protesters, you know, are are quick to say that because so much of the international media is focusing on oh they want food and 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 vaccines, but it's really not about that. I mean, certainly that's part of it, but that's that's a component of a much larger message, which is one of freedom and democracy. Well, let's talk about this other narrative. A lot of leftist sympathizers. Outside of Cuba, you know, figures like Bernie Sanders or Black Lives Matter, they tried to say that the protests were over COVID-19 or the U.S. embargo. No, I think that people in, in Cuba are smart enough to know uh, that the problems in Cuba are, have nothing to do with the embargo. Uh, it has to do with their government. Cuba can import all the food and medicine it wants from the United States and has a lot of business with the United States. In Cuba, they even go so far as to call it a blockade. Uh, it's anything but a blockade, but, it, you know, they, they'll, they'll select words uh, to further the impression they want to give, and certainly using the term blockade is one of them. But, but there's none of that. Cuba's problem is that it's a totalitarian society, and the problem with lifting the embargo is that in Cuba, the economy is controlled by the very people, right, who are the problem. Um, the the uh, military, state security, uh, they, they control the entire economy. They own much of the economy. And, of course, to do business in Cuba, you would have to cooperate with them. And, you know, no one's been able to answer the question, how are you going to bring freedom and democracy to Cuba by lifting the embargo? 
if in order to do business with Cuba, you have to do business and you have to enrich the oppressors. And, of course, that's, that's the problem. But in Cuba, there, there, there's always been uh, opposition. There's always been unhappiness. But the government was always able to get out of it through emigration, through one way or another, through control. But I, and, and I think, you know, most people kept their thoughts and their opinions to themselves. Um, every, everyone was trained to be, you know, a policeman. Uh, people were encouraged even to report on their parents if they, if they heard anything negative at home. Uh, children, you know, taught at school to report on their parents. Everyone was watching you. There, there, there's always been... Uh, at the neighborhood level, every, every block has a committee for the defense of the revolution keeping tabs. They keep do- dossiers on you at work to measure your political attitude, dossiers at school measuring the same thing. And in everyday interactions, people were always afraid that the wrong person would hear them saying something. But I think the big difference is now is that people are talking, and people are talking openly now, and they're unafraid to talk and to communicate those feelings to one another openly. And I think that's what you're seeing. Not and, and, and opposition to the regime and unhappiness is nothing new. Is nothing new. It's that just the the link between uh, you know people and and sharing those feelings. Uh, that's that's the big difference. Is that they're actually sharing them openly, and they're not afraid anymore. Who are some of the central figures in the protest? The heroes, so to speak, and where are they now? You know what I think that that one of the one of the beautiful things about this is that it is popular it is massive certainly you have some uh some, some artists uh that have emerged and whatnot but this is truly a revolution of the people this is not being led by this group or that group or this individual or that individual um i mean certainly there are people who've had more more influence but we're not talking about traditional political leaders uh, this has been truly spontaneous and, and of the people. Do we know what's happening to all these? I think it's around maybe 400 or so people that have been arrested and imprisoned. Yeah, one constantly sees uh, reports of isolation, torture, abuse of these people. But, you know, it, you know a lot of it is shrouded in, 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 in secrecy. But certainly the reports are very disturbing of what's happening to them. Uh, now they're using intimidation against people who are going to go protest, um, bringing them into state security. I read a letter, you know, or, or a, an article this morning uh, on a young artist who brought into state security and was warned, you know, do not go out because because you will be arrested because they're 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 planning another protest um, uh, in November at some point. When you were following the events in July, were you hopeful that? This was finally the moment for Cuba, like it was going to be something akin to the fall of the Berlin Wall. Yeah, I did, but I didn't think it would be instantaneous. Because remember, what kept these regimes in Eastern Europe in place was the Soviet Union. And once the Soviet Union, which was the, really the force there, the muscle there in Soviet tanks. Again, if you look at Eastern Europe, uh, you see a history of insurrection, except the Soviets always went in and brought it down. You saw it in East Germany in, in the 1950s, in Poland in the 1950s, in Hungary in the 1950s, in Czechoslovakia in the 1960s. But every time something happened, the Soviet tanks would go in, the Warsaw Pact, and bring it down. It was only when Gorbachev decided not to use muscle, 
that the process you know unfolded the same way it would have you know 30 40 years earlier in Cuba the muscle is still there and in Cuba not only do you have uh, a repressive regime but you have a regime backed up by some major powers who have very direct economic uh, political strategic interest in maintaining these people in power in Cuba countries a lot stronger than Cuba like Russia and China uh, Iran you name it and regionally Venezuela Nicaragua so the Cubans in Cuba and this has always been the case right pro-democracy Cubans have never just fought the Castro regime right in the you know up until you know the 1990s it was it was the Soviet Union they fought in addition to the Castro regime now it's all these other powers so it's not just Cubans you know pro-democracy Cubans against um, communist Cubans it's pro-democracy Cubans against a lot of powerful nations who have interest in maintaining uh, the repression Hoy yo te invito a caminar por mis solares Para demostrarte de que sirven tus ideales Somos humanos aunque no pensemos iguales No nos tratemos ni dañemos como animales Esta es mi forma de decírtelo Llora mi pueblo y siento yo su voz Tu 5-9, yo doble 2, 60 años Trancado el dominó According to reports since the protest, at least 16 generals in the Cuban army have suddenly died. And of course, there's various reasons given as to why they passed away. But anybody with a critical mind can just assume they just didn't all fall over dead by natural causes. Have you heard anything or have any thoughts on this as to what's really going on there? I mean, I'm reluctant to attribute, you know, anything to their cause of death. I can tell you that Obviously, I don't trust the Cuban government's version of it. Uh, what really happened, it, it's all speculation, but it is very, very suspicious that so many would die in such a brief period of time, you know, all of them since these uprisings in July. <laughs> you know, there's right. just a lot of uh, circumstantial evidence there that, that can at least point to uh, the logical you know, conclusion of suspicion of what might be going on. But, you know, definitively, hopefully we'll find out one day for sure, but I'm, I'm as suspicious as anyone else that all these people are suddenly uh, disappearing. I mean, but who knows what's going on within the power structure in Cuba, you know, between the military and the state security and, and all the other entities. Uh, right now we don't know, but it is suspicious that they're dying. Historically, especially when Fidel was still alive, it seemed like ever so often the Cuban communist leadership would get purged. So with that in mind, is there something we can learn from these past events that might tell us what's going on now? From the very beginning of the revolution, Castro took over, promising a democracy. His first government included many pro-democratic established politicians with long pro-democracy records. And within a few months, he began purging them. Uh, again, he used them as window dressing since, since his revolution was supposed to be about restoring democracy in Cuba. And so he used them as cover. He used them as window dressing uh, until he secured his power and then one by one got rid of them. And then in the late 1960s, in 1968, you had a massive purge, um, mostly of people who had previous, in, in the era previous to Castro, uh, had been among the leaders of Cuba's Communist Party. Of which, of, of which Castro was never part, 
right? Castro was never in Cuba's Communist Party, as far as we know. That's not to say he wasn't a communist, but he wasn't part of the, of the, of the party. Of course, he used those people uh, to organize Cuba along communist lines, and then in 1968, you had a massive purge um, of, of, of several of them, of several prominent uh, historical communists, of, of which Castro, again, was not a part. You had, of course, in the, in the late 80s, the purge of the military and Ochoa and all of those people who were, you know, of course, he trumped up charges on them, uh, but you had the uh, De La Guardia brothers, you had uh, General Ochoa and all of them. So, yeah, this has happened, and also what's happened, whenever the population, you know, begins to feel frustrated, they've been able to open uh, the gates of emigration and get rid of the pressure, which, of course, they did in, in, in the mid-1960s, they did it in 1980, they did it again in the 1990s. I'd like to get your opinion on how the U.S. specifically, but how also the rest of the world, how they could have reacted better in a more helpful way to the Cubans. And I want to ask this with a sense of history behind us. So, for example, you know, looking at the history of U.S.-Cuban relations, you know, back in the late 1800s, Spain ruled Cuba. You know, the people were trying to rebel. The Spanish responded with a very brutal, violent campaign you know, subjugation, starvation, and then at some point the United States decided to intervene and help the Cubans overthrow the Spanish. Of course, after that you have the Platt Amendment, where the U.S. is trying to guide Cuba and retaining a presence there of some sort. Uh, eventually that's replaced by the good neighbor policy and so on. So in your mind, can you first comment on this history that the two countries have? I mean, I mean Cuba was destroyed by the War of Independence. Um, when the United States went in, really, I mean, the Cubans had almost achieved independence on their own. You know, the United States just kind of came in and, you know, and delivered the, the final blow, I guess you could say, against Spain. Mm-hmm. And then, remember, this was the era of, of imperialism, of Western powers in general. Um, and so, you know, just like the U.S. went into the Philippines and you know, France was at Indochina and everything else, uh, you know, Cuba, though, retained its independence. Cuba became an independent country with a very heavy United States presence. Uh, there was the Platt Amendment, but that was later repealed, right? You know, a couple decades later, the Platt Amendment was gone. The Castro regime loves to talk about the Platt Amendment. And sometimes gives the impression that it was Castro who removed it. it was, Platterman was gone uh, decades before Castro took over. The United States did play a major role in developing Cuba. There was a lot of investment, um, you know, especially in, in sugar and, and other areas. But by the 1930s, most of, the, of, the, of sugar in Cuba was in Cuban hands. Right, so then they give the impression that all the U.S. corporations owned all the sugar in Cuba. That simply wasn't true. You know, certainly a lot of economic development. I mean, I mean, the one fact no one can argue with is that Cuba went from a state of total destruction to within five decades having the highest standard of living, probably in all of Latin America, certainly in the Caribbean and in and you know and and the whole region. Cuba's standard of living by 1958, was higher than many European countries. So, yeah, Cuba's economic and social development was, was, was very fast, and the United States uh, was very much a part of it. And Cuba was more a part of the, of the United States economic system than it was that of Latin America. 
And there was a lot of, you know, back and forth of Cubans and Americans. There were, you know, Americans who emigrated to Cuba and settled there. There were others who lived there temporarily, but by, by the same token, a lot of Cubans came to the United States, you know, including members of my own family who, who went to the U.S. for boarding school, um, attended American schools in Cuba, you know, owned homes in the United States. I mean, there was a constant back and forth. Although Cuba wasn't part of the United States, it was very, very close and very, very tied to the United States. And the United States had a lot of influence on developing Cuba into what it became by the 1950s. And, of course, today it's one of the poorest nations and most desperate nations in Latin America over these past 60 years. So if you look at Cuba in its first 60 years, you see one picture. You look at it in its past, last 60 years, you see a completely different one. So what do you think the U.S. response should have been? I mean, do you think they should have intervened militarily, or is this something that the Cubans have to figure out on their own? Well, I think the United States could have done a lot more politically at, at um, you know, not just pronouncing solidarity with, with the people who were risking their lives. Um, it could have been more aggressive at the Organization of American States, at the United Nations. It could have done a full-court press. I mean, there were some, you know, moves that the United States made, but it, it was too little too late. I think it, that, that the U.S. needed to be very aggressive, at, at least politically, at an international level, uh, a lot earlier than it was. Papinga, y sigan afuera, protestando y formando todos ustedes. Okay? Demuestren que valió la pena, pinga. Ya vienen a tumbar la puerta, tú sabes que son... ¿Viste? Ya vienen a tumbar la puerta. You know, on this podcast, we've talked a lot about what the Communist Party has done to the Cuban people, but what we haven't talked about as much is what that same entity has done meddling with other countries' affairs. So, for example, in South America and as far away as Africa. Can you give folks listening a sense of what all the Cuban regime has gotten up to? I'm not uh, an expert in that, but I certainly could tell you that from the very beginning of the revolution, Castro was already intervening in numerous countries in Latin America, in Africa, uh, and, I mean, all over the world. I mean, he was determined to spread this far and wide. Of course, that was largely uh, a failure, but he certainly... Uh, brought about a lot of destruction in, and, and, and instability in the process. The larger wars in Africa, right, with, with the mobilization of the regular Cuban army, etc., wasn't until the mid-1970s. But there was a long history of intervention before that, even in the Middle East, with, with the whole uh, Arab-Israeli conflict, a strong anti-Israel stand, in, interventions in wars in Angola, in Ethiopia, and, of course, a lot of it was to enrich the upper echelon in, in, in Cuba and to satisfy the Soviet Union and get a lot of money from the Soviet Union. So Cuba, in, in, in some of those cases, was just kind of used as a tool of the Soviet Union to carry out its foreign policy. And then at other times, uh, it was, you know, Cuba doing it in its own right, depending on where it went. But the, the history is so long. And, again, I'm not an expert on that. But, again, I could tell you that not only militarily, overt military, covert military, but also its intelligence services have, have penetrated uh, the world far and wide. That's, that's the only thing that works in Cuba, right? It's uh, repressive apparatus at home and it's spy network abroad. I mean, right now, 
you know, in, in prison, there, there was, you know, um, if you look up uh, Anna Belen Montes, you know, she was the head of, 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 of intelligence for the military on Cuba, right? She was the Cuba person. She was a Cuban spy, and she's in prison right now, and, and she got arrested shortly after 9-11. I believe the, the great-great-great-grandson or something of uh, uh, Alexander Graham Bell is in uh, prison right now. Kendall Myers, who was arrested in 2009 for spying for Cuba. So, yes, they have a strong intelligence uh, network that stretches across the world. Now, you've published books and are in academia, and the stereotype is that in the American publishing and higher learning industry, that is all dominated by you know, left-leading forces that are hostile to anyone who sheds light on it. Any of their heroes, like you know Che Guevara, Fidel Castro, even you'll find some that are sympathetic or big fans of Chairman Mao or Stalin and others. Based on your own experience, do you think that's a reality or is that exaggerated? I can't say I interact a lot with that element, but I could say I in in you know where I teach and in my college and my publisher, which has always been the University Press of Florida, I've never had a problem. I've never had a problem with anyone trying to pressure me or anything of the sort. And what I know about, you know, people's opinions on Cuba within academia probably is what you know. But, yeah, it, it's, it's unfortunate that so many people are under this impression that what exists in Cuba is, is good. And, of course, they've, they've demonized Cuban exiles when, you know, the, the Cuban exile community has always been led by pro-democracy Cubans from the very, very first day. It was led by pro-democracy Cubans. And I always challenge everybody. I say, listen, go and look up, okay, the members of the government that was supposed to take over on the beaches of the Bay of Pigs, right? Because the plan was to establish a beachhead and, and then land a provisional government on the shores and, 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 and proclaim a democratic government, uh, provisional government at arms. Look at every individual, okay, who was to be part of that government and all of them were anti-Batista, they were pro-democracy, they had careers of being, you know, pro-democracy. But, you know, that defense of the Castro regime, unfortunately, um, has, has also led to a demonization of the exiles, again, who are and have always been pro-democracy. But, yeah, for some reason, I think maybe, you know, the Castro regime has been very effective in presenting its image, in, in you know, presenting its, its views, it came into existence at a time of uh, decolonization in other parts of the world, so Castro was able to uh, cast himself in that same light. And, you know, of course, for some people, all you have to say is socialist and anti-American, and they're going to give you the benefit of the doubt. And I find that unfortunate because the lives of many generations of Cubans have been ruined by the Castro regime and its successors. Cubana, si son cubana, son más melosas. Son más hermosas las de La Habana y las indianas de Santa Clara son tan preciosas y no son tan caras. Do you mind talking about your own family's experience? Well, my family was non-political. Uh, you know, never had any you know famous politicians or anything. Uh, they're from Havana. My father's father was a very prominent attorney who did hold a couple of cabinet positions here and there. Briefly, but he was an attorney, uh, did very well. His his father was uh, an immigrant from uh, Menorca, the island of Menorca, uh, who became a banker and then a lawyer and law professor in Cuba. 
you know, they lived, you know, you know, quiet lives. My mother's family, you know, the two branches were very different. One was very recently from Spain, and and the other had been in Cuba a few generations longer. But again, you know, uh, they were business owners, uh, lived in Havana, led private lives, never got involved in politics. And then, of course, when all of this broke out uh, and all of this mess, uh, then, of course, you know, it was time to get out. And, like, you know, for the same reasons so many hundreds of thousands of others left during that era, and they left, my parents left, they were about to get married in, in Cuba. They were 21. They left in October 1960. And again, back then, everybody was thinking the return to Cuba was going to be quick because there was no way that the United States was going to allow, you know, a communist country 90 miles away. They were in Miami very briefly. They got married and then went to Puerto Rico for six years uh, before returning to Miami right before I was born. My father's family, you know, came in. My grandfather was involved you know, somewhat with the political end of what became the uh, Bay of Pigs invasion. He didn't go to the invasion, but he was part of the political structure. Uh, in later years, he, my father had two much younger brothers and a younger sister who were, who were still with my grandparents. They eventually went to Spain, and they lived in Spain several years, and then uh, returned to Miami, and my grandfather was one of the founders of the first Cuban-owned bank in Miami. And so he became a banker in Miami, and he passed away in 1984. So that was on my father's side of the family. My, my, and, you know, my mother's parents lived nearby. And I was raised, you know, kind of in the heart of the community, uh, not giving it too much importance because it was all so normal that everybody around me was, you know, from, you know, or most of the people around me were from families similar to mine. And then in Miami, you know, we lived similarly. And, and I never gave too much importance to the whole Cuba thing until, until later years. And then I realized, wow, there's a tremendous story there. And so, yeah, and so here I am all these years later, <laughs> later writing books about Cuban exiles. But, you know, again, like so many Cubans, you know, they weren't involved in politics. They weren't Batista people. They just led, you know, peaceful, you know, quiet, private lives. And then all of a sudden, you know, the, the, the people in power, you know, targeted them and their lives and, and their freedoms and everything else. And, and you know, the, the pressure was such that uh, they had to leave. Right. And, and, you know, and, and, and it wasn't because they were starving and it wasn't because they were anything, but, you know, because they were repressed. And, you know, as individuals, as Catholics, you know, they felt the repression all around. You know, and again, that's the story of, you know, 200,000 other people who left on that first wave. Fortunately, there was no they didn't suffer, you know, the way other families I know did who, you know, the head of the family might have been uh, in prison and, and separate from his family for two decades or people who had relatives executed and all of that stuff. They had a difficult time when they left and like all the um, exiles did and, uh, you know, worked really hard and, and succeeded in this country and are very grateful for uh, having the opportunity to be here. If folks listening to this feel compelled to do something for the cause of liberty in Cuba, uh, what do you recommend that they do? Where, where does one start? You know, inform yourself. Uh, know the difference between the lies often projected by the Cuban government and repeated by their, by, their, uh, by their supporters here. You know, inform yourself about the truth of the repression that has existed in Cuba since the very beginning. You know, and support the Cuban people any opportunity you get. This is the closest... I think that, that we've come in 60 years. But there's a long way to go. There's a long way to go. And there's a lot of interest that 
are supporting the Cuban government. The chief among them, of course, is you know China or the Chinese Communist Party, uh, Russia, and you know other countries like Iran and smaller countries like uh, Venezuela and Nicaragua. So what these kids on the street are up against is something very big. It's more than just the Cuban government, and they know that. And they know that, and they're willing to take action. And they don't have much support around the world. I mean, mostly because the world is is simply indifferent. So any any support that people can give them, even if it's moral support, their prayers, helping spread the word about what's happening in, in Cuba, is is all very helpful. <laughs> That said, if you'd like to learn more about Cuba's history, Dr. Triai has written several books, notably about the Bay of Pigs invasion, Operation Pedro Pan, and the Mariel Boatlift, all of which can be found at most book outlets. And speaking of Operation Pedro Pan, we talked with an actual participant in that historical event, Dr. Carlos Ayer, back on In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile, episode 250. In addition... On episode 236, we spoke with Cuban human rights activist Rosa Maria Paya, who talked with us not only about her own work, but that of her father, Osvaldo Paya, who was murdered by the Castro regime in 2012. In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya. Yeah.